The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Uh, well, a short mid-afternoon Sonoma pour. Well, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I well, not for, fortunately for me, I poured a little bit first before I remembered we needed a pour. So, um, cheers to that. Yeah, ab- welcome. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. I'm John Myers. Welcome to the Winemakers. I'm with uh, my friend Mark Hansen today. Brian is going to be right with us, and we are with Javier Rollet from. Well, Chen Blue is how I know you in uh, in the Rhone region in France, and also Arini Global, which is uh, a huge organization now that does nothing but help viticulture and agriculture worldwide. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Enjoy. It's a good way Cheers. to start a show. First time I've ever started a show with a fine glass of wine. That's what you're supposed to do here at Sonoma. <laughs> Well, you are on quite a seminar schedule here. Um, how's, it, how's the seminar going? Yeah, they're working us really hard, but it's with great people. And being in Sonoma, I'd been to Sonoma before, but I've discovered a lot of things because unlike just a regular visit, you see a friend, visit a, a winery, we're really digging pretty deep into what is Sonoma and how old it is and the history and the varietals and the incredible array of viticultural philosophies and approaches and so it's this trip has revealed to me the complexity and frankly the global contribution the Sonoma can make and when you have that depth and richness and diversity of varietals going back you know 175 years which some vintners are being outstanding at protecting and nurturing. This is not just a contribution to the economy of Sonoma, to the wine industry here, to the enjoyment of California-based consumers, maybe U.S.-based consumers. It's a global contribution. And one of the things you find in the wine industry, or I certainly did find, although some of my family and, and relatives were already in the wine industry, well, it's like any business, it can be a bit competitive. It's also extremely cooperative, yeah. and it's very, very well connected globally. So people do care, and they're prepared to share. The, the producers, the sommeliers, the enologists, and actually it, it connects Sonoma to the rest of the world. In a way, wine is a little bit like traveling. When it's well-made, you can drink a wine that really expresses what a particular region, what its geology, what its history, what its people are, the way wine is made without having to travel. And, and, and I think the expression of the wines of Sonoma, particularly now that Sonoma has become, it, to my knowledge, the first viticultural region in the world to go fully sustainable and to go comprehensively sustainable. So everybody is signed up to that mandate and I don't think this has been done anywhere else around the world I could be wrong but I believe I'm, I'm pretty certain I'm correct so this is a contribution not just to the consumers here but it's also an example I think it's part of the leadership and and for the rest of the wine industry it gives you a time to pause and say what why are the people 
you know, maybe they're thinking of doing the same thing. And ultimately, it's going to help change the image of the wine industry, which sometimes, and, you know, correctly has been accused of, you know, using too many chemicals, uh, drawing too much of resources of the land. Regenerative agriculture, sustainable viticulture, working with nature, producing something that doesn't reflect the nature of the chemicals you put in the ground. Right, absolutely. But reflects the nature of the ground, of the region, of the climate, and of the people. And that's that's something special. It's just not like any, you know, I think viticulture is special in that respect. And there is room for emotion. It's not just about the brands and the distribution. And we found this in Sonoma, and I think it's been so far a great experience. So, you know, to give credit where credit is due, what we have to thank to save all those varietals that are mixed in with the Zinfandel it's the when white Zinfandel became popular in America in the 80s um, because it's what kept all those old vineyards in production. Yeah. Um, you know, when I first started my career in the uh, mid 80s, we made um, a white Zinfandel. I worked at Kenwood Winery and it was um, primarily made of all old vine Zinfandel vineyards and you know we made a small amount of red wine out of each of those vineyards but the majority of it all went to rosé and um, those vineyards are all still in production at this point some 30 plus years later so um, it really has done that Um, to your comments about other areas that have kind of dedicated their time to um, sustainability um, yes Sonoma Valley or Sonoma County has done a very good job um we do wish that they included um, uh, herbicides with that also, but we're just not there yet. You know, as it's been explained to me in the past, it's a pathway towards that, you know, and and really herbicides is one part of sustainability as we know. Um, but, you know, the Lodi area, which also has a lot of old vines. Yes. Um, they have a pretty good commitment to it. There's also, you know, conventionally farmed vineyards, huge acres there. But, um, but yeah, you're right. Sonoma, Lodi, I mean, and some other places coming on. Paso. Um, it's been great. Yeah, Paso's been a little bit, you know, they're, they've been, everything's been a little behind. But there are certainly huge leaders in Paso. I mean, Tablas Creek, uh, the Haas family has been, you know amazing with what they've done and what we're all learning from the work that they've done at Tablas Creek. This is probably a question I should ask Morgan, but are there more Zin old vines than anything else? Well, yeah, I mean, Zinfandel-based vineyards, and in those vineyards, yes, there's more Zin than anything else, but... um, But do they make up the most, uh, the majority of the old vines? Yeah, yeah, Uh, for, for in California, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's an incredible array of old vines, but the quantity is small. You mentioned Morgan um, um, uh, Twain-Peterson yeah. at, at Bedrock, and he's, he's the, the master here in the, in the region and one of the, certainly the people that have promoted it. So Zinn, of course, because of the, the statistical relevance of what was done, but when you look at the foundation where at Buena Vista this morning and then the, the Hungarian immigrant who brought, you know, hundreds of different varietals, you find, besides the varietals that were already there, that were brought by the Spanish um, uh, mission, for example, you find Cunois, you find Negret, you find, of course, the Mourvedre and the Grenaches and the Roussins and the And Ferment. Yes, and, and many <laughs> others. And these have been kept, so statistically they're less relevant. However, But they're very important. They're very important because ultimately each, what we call terroir in French, which right, I, I think people, you know, 
So the environment, the weather, the soil, the people that work it, the nature of the, of the, the natural environment is going to be better suited for certain varietals and not so well for others. And you can't find that out in a new area. I mean, back in the middle of the 19th century, California was a new viticultural area. You had to try a lot of things. And I think Zin, for example, which which was overplanted and then was replaced with some of the sort of more fashionable, the cabs and the others, succeeded in California because it's well-suited. You know, Rosé has taken off and many other things. So ultimately, it's about a little bit of trial and error. It's finding what really works well. But if you don't start from a real diverse portfolio of, of op options in a new area that has the advantage of being naturally beautiful, naturally rich, having a lot of potential, it's going to be difficult to find. And I suspect because in biology, just like in a natural environment, there's going to be some adaptation to local condition, whether you call it adaptation, whether you call it evolution, within a subspecies, you're going to have some developments, including in the future, where certain varietals are going to be specific. I mean, in fact, they in fact have specific California names, you know, like some Woodstock, St. George. But there's going to be things that are specific to California and that have not evolved, that have not adapted in the same way here as, as they had elsewhere. Right. So I, th I do think there's a, there's a remarkable experience. And ultimately, I, sh I share your, your comments, by the way, about herbicides. You know what? For us, where we are, and we're in a in a sort of middle altitude, uh, a ninth-century priory that that was abandoned, that we've restored o over several decades. We've eschewed the use of all herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, acaricides. We don't use chemicals in the winery either. We don't use tartaric acid. We don't use microplastics. I think the time is coming for the industry because there is concerns everywhere of the way about the way we use natural resources, right? Uh, the way we, we, we exploit nature. We can do it in a positive, we can do it in a negative way. But I think the time is coming where viticulture is going to have to deal with the challenge of labeling. And there's already talks in Europe, I don't know if the same will happen in the United States, where on the label, on the back label, perhaps with one bottle, presence of chemicals. It could be residual. It could be residual herbicides. It could be insecticides. It could be the microplastics that some use to filter, to, you know, to find their, their whites or their rosés. We'll have to figure on the label. And then consumers will have an, a choice. Uh, and if you look at the rest of the food and beverage industry, already everybody has to say what's you know, in the, in the bottle, in the bag. So that's a challenge for the viticole industry. What I think was done in Sonoma was a good step because it makes it public. Yep. It's a commitment. It's a step in the right direction. Yep. I don't think it's the last step. But like in any race, if you start a little early, yep. if you persevere, if you don't become complacent or lazy, you have an opportunity to remain, you know, ahead of, of the pack. And I think that's the option and that's the opportunity. And I do agree with you, you know, we really got to think about the damage we do to the soil by putting chemicals that kill the bacteria, that kill the mi microbiome, that make the soil less resistant to drought, right. to rain, to, you know, the, the, the changing climatic conditions. So there'll be those who believe in it and do it and try. Yep. They make mistakes, but on the way. Yep. And the others who resist change, and as always, there's always a moment where change is no longer an option but becomes an obligation. And if you're not ready, 
you know, you're not ready. You you change business model or you change business. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it is interesting. So there are um, a number of wineries that have started – what they've started to do is put their ingredient list on. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think I think we would probably credit um, Ridge to being the first one that started doing that. Well, good for them. Um, there's been a number of smaller wineries, some friends of ours that do it. Um, and 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 it it's it opens the book like this is what we put in our wine, period. Exactly. And and there are things that they've put in that they would rather not because you know, one year you have to add a little bit of acid, so it goes on the label that year. Maybe you didn't ever do it, um, but it's you. It's all. It's about doing the right thing, right? Um, and it's about being accountable, and and that's that's the most important thing is that we're all accountable. And it's, at least I feel that accountability is ultimately a choice from consumers. So yeah. to make a choice, you have to know, right? And if there is proper disclosure. Then consumers can can make their their own decisions. You know, one one of the the I think that by nature the viticultural industry is rather static geographically. Yeah, we all know. You know, you don't grow a vine in two years. Right. So you make commitments for many many decades. And in terms of its own regulation, you know, the sort of the so-called uh, geographical origin systems, it, it's also quite a uh, geographically inflexible uh, uh, form of agriculture. But now we got climate change, and climate change is accelerating. You know, they're they're talking about a an El Nino that could be one of the most extreme on record. That's that's on the way for this fall, yeah. this winter, and next spring. And so, unfortunately, yeah, it's just the way it is. And you know, we can discuss what climate change is, but I don't think this is a subject for for today's discussion. But an industry that's based on agriculture and nature that depends so heavily on the weather, that is by nature inflexible geographically. And is dealing with climate change that is actually coming quite hurriedly and in a fashion perhaps possibly more brutal than what we expected. There's going to be a flight towards altitude. There's going to be a search for natural condition that can help mitigate the droughts, the heat that reduce the, the maturation season. So you mentioned acid, for example. If you look at a lot of the roses public, you know, uh, produced, for example, in my own country, in, in southern France. Southern France is the hottest region in France. Uh, yet, for rosé, you need freshness, coolness, acidity. And so, almost by obligation, the vintners will put tartaric acid to restore that, that acidity. But that, of course, helps essentially degrade the organoleptic condition of the, vine, of the wine. So, they tell you you know, with tartaric acid, you have to drink the rosé the year it's produced. That's the sort of orthodoxy. But without tartaric acid, you know, a rosé will not last 50 years, but it can last 6, 7, 10, 12 years if it's well made. And the way to mitigate is probably not to look at putting tartaric acid, but to migrate the production of rosé to a much higher area where you have the natural freshness, coolness, thanks to altitude. And you can see where I'm leading with this is an industry that structurally is quite inflexible geographically is going to have to consider solutions yeah. to, if it wants to remain natural, a, a product that is actually good for your health. It's going to have to look at things that are difficult structurally to do. You know, the, the largest, one of the biggest luxury company in the world, uh, LVMH, the French, uh, Louis Vuitton, Tennessee, have a, a massive one in spirit arm. And seven years ago, they invested in 
land, viticultural land in Tibet at altitude <laughs> between 2,200 and 2,600 meters. So you talk about above 7,000 feet. So these guys are thinking 100 years out, maybe 50 years out. But that tells you the trend. And so I think for producers here, the alternative ultimately to compensate for certain challenges that are imposed by nature with chemicals is going to be looking at different ways to, in different areas where, where to plant your vines, but also different ways to work the soil. Because yeah. if your soil is alive, if you have bacterial activity, if you can ingest, retain the moisture, retain through aerobic and aerobic bacteria, earthworms, earthworms which are incompatible with the use of herbicides, as you mentioned, the use right. of other things, insecticides, you're going to have a, a vine that's more naturally able to resist the strand and still produce a good product that will give. Because wine, to me, it's 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 not just about the satisfaction of some you know gustative desire. It's emotion. It's it's human social interaction. It's the social media of agriculture. You get around a good bottle of wine, you're going to share that emotion. It would be really sad if, for lack of adaptation, we lost the viticole in industry because we lost consumer support for the quality of the viticultural product. And then, you know, what happens if all these vineyards go? What's going to replace them? There's going to be second homes from all over the place. There's going to yeah. be pockmarked with all sorts of constructions. It's part of a history. You know, for those of you who are scripturally minded, remember the first thing Noah did when he got out of... Uh, the ark he planted a vineyard uh you know what is the first miracle that it was done it was converted water into wine what did what did paul say to his uh, young follower timothy drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach this is part of our history whatever your your personal convictions are it goes back thousands of years of recorded human history so it's not just a product that gives you satisfaction it's a social interaction it's a sharing of human emotion it brings people closer drunk in moderation i'll uh, i'll readily concede and it's it's different than just you know a good meal it's it's really something special i think in the realm well, of human culture yeah i mean a meal Maybe. for me a meal is different without wine exactly you know and and there are times in my own household, I'll ask my wife, are you going to have wine tonight? And she's like, you know, no, not tonight. And I always have a glass. And it's funny, I usually change from stemware to a stemless glass if I'm drinking by myself for whatever reason it is, you know, but it's just a glass and it, it truly does enhance my meal. And, um, and, and I think to your point also, it's the conversation that comes around a bottle of wine that's so important in our society. We um, need more of it. We more, need more of it because right now, you know, anger is everywhere. Yeah, and, and I don't want to get in trouble with the FCC, but it's they like it's like platonic love. Listening. It's like yeah. platonic love. There's something missing. If you right. see what I mean, it's like a meal without wine. Yeah. Excuse the uh, the image. No, no, it's no, all it's, okay. Believe me, we don't edit, and nobody cares because okay. there is no FCC here. Right. So, so well, you're having me drinking wine here, so naturally, you know, good the most of human emo emotions is to come out. So um, could you give us a little bit of background on the organization? Um, I know it sounds to me like it was inspired from 
um, something that Nicole started. Yes. Um, and, and in fact, it's been a number of years now. When I went back and started to kind of look at some of the articles that you guys have published or, or helped bring forward, um, it's been going on for a while. And um, if you could just give us a little background for our yes. listeners so they can do their Certainly. own research. Uh, you know, as I said to John, I, I have to confess, since this is a friendly conversation, I, I'm in awe at this woman, Nicole, who for some strange reason agreed to, to marry me. Uh, you know, per, perhaps a moment of of abandon. She she co-created with another lady by the name of Pauline Vicar what is essentially a think tank, and the the the, the description, of this mission is fine minds for fine wines. It's really getting a global community on a completely voluntary basis. Something that started uh, really in, initially with something that we did at our property in Provence at Chen Bleu called the Grenache Symposium. We we noticed that Grenache was one of the most heavily planted uh, varietals in the world, but there was really no advocacy, no knowledge, no understanding of what beautifully uh, cultured and cultivated Grenache could, could yield. So we brought people from all over the world, you know, North America, Asia, masters of wine, producers, uh, sommeliers, restaurateurs at Chen Bleu in, in Provence. And, and we did a one-off. This was a three-day event. It was an enormous amount of organizations. But as it, as it concluded, because we'd had an opportunity to think of the future of fine wine, we thought, can we give this a, a little more structured approach? Could we meet once a year in different parts of the world? We've done it in Champagne. Now we're doing it in Sonoma. Next, I think, it's going to be in Chile. We did it in South Africa. Could we meet with some of the, the vanguard? the most thoughtful, innovative, creative, sometimes irreverent wine producers, wine professionals, can be wine associations, people who are doing new things, who really understand the essence and the power of the wine culture, to share our experiences, but try to come up with practical initiatives that really ultimately are gonna help the consumer. They're gonna help the consumer appreciate what a fine wine is, the difference between a fine wine and just consuming alcohol for the pleasure and the joys of, of, of alcohol. And this initially was a lot of work. It started very modestly and is now growing into uh, what I think is quite a, a relevant um, high end in terms of the, the quality of the wine. But a group of people who, are, who share the same passion, you know, we mentioned, we talked about uh, uh, Morgan Train Peterson, for example, we had a, a wonderful opportunity also to spend time with the Jackson family here, with the Duttons. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with a famous Yellowstone series, <laughs> yeah. uh, although maybe they would like to. I don't know. Uh, no one had to go to the train station after <laughs> after drinking of it too much. So these these guys are doing things, and we're at the Buena Vista uh, uh, with Mr. Buese's property here this morning. All these families are doing something because they believe in wine. And they're trying to innovate and do something different. And they, they like to share with like-minded producers, like-minded wine professionals. And they're not all of them very large. Some of them are very small, some of them are mid-sized, to deal with the challenges, access to permanent capital, you know, the 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 the, the husbandry of 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 the soil, the husbandry of the genetic material we've been entrusted with. How do we deal with the an increasingly complex geopolitical environment, you know, trade tariffs. That always hits the consumer. At the end of the day, when there's trade wars, 
for certain the consumer pays. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with uh, understanding the power and, frankly, the health benefits? I know there are some who think any alcohol in any quantity is bad. Well, many doctors, many scientists and biologists would disagree. So how do we represent the benefits, including mental? Mental health is is today becoming a, a key concern. A very moderate consumption of very high-quality wines that represent nature, that are here as an advocate of nature. It's, it's, there is a reason why this is the oldest form of recorded agricultural activity. It's been around for a long time. So RINI was really created not as a heavy bureaucratic you know, organization, but as a way to not only bring these like-minded professionals in the wine industry together, but do so regularly to try to, over time, move the dial, frankly, for the greatest benefits of consumers so that they can appreciate what a great wine experience can be. That doesn't mean it has to be a you know, $200 a bottle of wine. There are some outstanding, we, we tasted some wines from Georgia, Caucasus, not not the, the American states. Uh, we're off to Chile, so we're going to look at next year. We look at Latin American wines. There, there's a wine culture everywhere in the world. It's it's striking. That's the purpose of Irani. It's it's really a, a convivial think tank that is trying to do good for the benefit of consumers and for the benefit of, frankly, a form of agriculture that is facing massive challenges and which future is not certain you know is not certain is not insured i mean i think what i um, I applaud you for is that i think a lot of people when they think of a think tank they think of a dark room with a bunch of powerful people sitting around in a circle deciding the fate of the world um and and i say that sarcastically obviously but we have no such pretension that's for sure (laughs) but but i think the important thing is is that that is proven here and and if you do the readings and see who's included is really what you've done there is is you've brought in the people it's not just the people that are concerned with the industry but you're you've included the people who are actually doing the industry yeah And, and obviously that's very important but a lot of times things like that are talked about, but you guys have, are succeeding in yeah. bringing the entire, you know, literally from ground to consumption together. Well, we're, we're on our way. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work and it requires a lot of perseverance and there's always skeptics. But as you start moving the dial and connect with more and more people and then realize that, you know, the vintners of Spain, of Chile, of, of here, California, of Italy, everywhere else, the folks that really care about the stewardship of the land they've been given. Not not the sort of greenwashing nonsense, but people who really care about their consumers, about what they've been entrusted to. They share the same issues, the same challenges. I mentioned some of them. And frankly, they'd like for the industry and its benefits and what it brings, the enjoyment that it brings to humane society to, to be recognized to a lot of people think the wine industry, as you said, they are powerful people, they draw a lot of public money, subsidies. Nothing could be further for the truth. It's why, probably in terms of subsidies, and, and this is not a call for government to subsidize the wine industry, but it's one of the least supported, least subsidized, and most highly regulated form of agriculture. And so what, what viticultures are are asking, I think, and I, I can, I, of course, do not speak for all the industry. What I hear more and more is, would like that the efforts that are made by certainly part of the of the of the viticultural industry to 
care about the soil. You know, you're looking at cover crops, you're looking at composting, looking at no-till. This is expensive. This requires a lot of labor. Absolutely, it does. Uh, it's it's not something done done cheaply. Is those efforts to to be recognized? You know, when you you hear politicians says you know any alcohol in any quantity is bad. Well, science disagrees, and and many doctors. You know, it was Louis Pasteur himself, if I may quote a fellow Frenchman, if I can be <laughs> forgiven, um, who who said you know wine is the most healthful and hygienic of beverages. Now, he wasn't completely incompetent in the area of biology. So, again, it's, it's, it's about moderation. It's about the quality of your drink. If, if your glass of wine is full of chemicals, I would not certainly be an advocate of that. But it's, it's part of human society, human culture, human experience. And what I think the viticultural industry that is working really hard, that is taking risks, to migrate from chemical to regenerative agriculture, all they want is a little bit of love, a little bit of acknowledgement, right. <laughs> a yeah. little bit of recognition, and not always the sort of weight of, you know. Well, it's going in that direction. Well, I think that's good. Uh, I don't know if it's true everywhere, but if it's true in California, you guys are leading the world again. So congratulations. It, it, it's funny. I just recently saw my cousins, and in my family, my mom's side of the family, they were all in the dairy industry. Right. And so my now the th- fourth generation of my of my uncle's ranches come into the business and the first to go to college and come back with a degree in agriculture so first they were you know just starting the dairy the next generation came in they farmed conventionally my cousins came in my my um, era came in and they needed to turn organic because that's what kept them, that's what made them profitable. Yeah. And that was something was a huge change for them because they, they, they were never going to do that. Like they thought people were organic were crazy. Now they've done it. Now my, my cousin's son has come into the business fresh out of school and he's digging pits out and analyzing the soil and trying to think what can they do differently. And so obviously it takes generations to happen. Um, but, but the, I guess my ending point is, is that my cousin said to me at the end of our conversation was, I just wish that people celebrated milk the way they celebrate wine. You know, nobody sits around and raises a glass of milk and, you know, and I said, well, cheese. And he said, yes, you know, that might change too. I mean, when you look at the junk that including some of the chemicals that, and the the hormones that are fed to certain cows. Yeah. And what ends up in your glass of milk, which probably makes you sick. You know, why do we have so many kids, 8, 9, 10-year-old, who have cancer? Right. You know, cancer is, to a certain extent, a certain extent self-imposed disease, given the, the, the chemically processed nature of a lot of the food that we eat. Wheat is another one, those gluten allergies. You have no allergies to, to spelt when wheat was produced uh, right. without, without chemicals. But, but to put that in a different context... I do think there's a growing awareness. You know, it's different stages in America and around the rest of the world. And the point you made about shifting from chemical to regenerative organic agriculture, it's very risky for the farmer because Mm -hmm. let's say you're sort of mid-sized family farm, you got some debt on the side, You've, you've been farming a certain way, so there's some predictability if you use herbicides, insecticides, all sorts of synthetic things you put in the ground. There's some predictability to the yield you're going to get and therefore to the economic outcome of that year's harvest. When you switch the transition 
which can be anywhere from three to seven, ten years, means that there may be years where you lose part of your harvest or where as the soil is re natural soil with bacteria and, and earthworms is being reconstituted, your crops have to to change. You also may have to vary and diversify your, your, your production. That economically may be a cost that many farms simply can, a risk that they cannot take. Right. And so, actually, maybe I'll come back here in a year or two if it succeeds. If you'll have me again, <laughs> yeah. maybe you won't <laughs> after what I said today. <laughs> but I'm working on a project to try to combine uh, foundational and long-term impact investment with the ac uh, under a, a management company that would acquire derelict, disused, deeply damaged ranch land, agricultural mm -hmm. land, could be also viticultural land, obviously not here in Sonoma, Napa is quite expensive. Combine that with an academic institutions that would give the younger generations of farmers that for either inheritance reason or lack of capital cannot access, you know, their, their parents' farm because it's too many kids or simply they can't. And, and also a, an online farm to fork distribution mechanism so that we can put uh, with capital, medium to long-term capital, some disused land and make it available to young generations of farmers who have been trained, who are interested in bringing that land back to a productive status, status through regeneration. There's a capital gain to be made through distribution, online farm to fork, which is already starting to happen. And, and there are a number of organizations in the United States that are doing it quite extensively. You know, might surprise you to hear that biggest distributor of organic food in the United States today is Costco. Some right. people know, some people don't. But to see if we can marry these things, management, recuperation. America has probably lost, according to uh, Kiss the Ground, the, the documentary, over 100 million acres. Yeah of arable land. It may be even more than that. So you take Lost that them land, to what? Poison? Desertification. Dead. Oh, okay. You know, essentially right. chemical farming that okay. leads to land no longer right. be of use to anyone and being essentially abandoned. I, I also run a, a regenerative ranch in, in Montana and I've seen that happen. Uh, but you can regenerate and bring these, these soils, almost even some of the most damaged soil, you can bring them back to life. So. There is also capital gains. You know, there's a value creation to be done, giving access to ownership and training to young generations of farmers, but also giving them better control over the processing and distribution because many agricultural businesses suffer, in my opinion, from two things. Either a distribution that's super concentrated, so there's like one or two processes and distributors, so the producer has absolutely no pricing power. You know, look at you know, the, the meatpacking business, which over decades is concentrated into essentially three operators today. And look at the way consumer pays for increases, but producers get very little in terms of increases of the price paid to them for, for beef cattle, for example. And others are s super fragmented. They have like layers and layers and layers of intermediaries. But in the age of internet, the age of direct communications, right? Radio, I was pleased to hear that radio is really, is really growing in the United States. Why not offer to the consumer the benefits of a better product whilst leaving in the hands of the producers more of the value that they've created by taking the risk of producing genuinely regenerative natural products that are not 
excuse my French, but that are not full of junk, of right. processed chemicals. And the wine industry, I think, is, is in the same situation. How far along are you on that project? I'm getting started. I'm working with a few universities. I don't know which one I'll, I'll end up doing it with because I also want a, a training in academic. One, one may be in California, the other two on the East Coast. So I'll keep you posted. Right now, it's Absolutely. just an early stage project. Well, that's a great idea. Well, you know, the, it semi might not work, the seminar you're do here doing now with Rini, uh, I'm, I'm looking at your post online, and, and it is available online for free. Yes. Uh, you're talking about the future of consumer segmentation, long-term reputation, obviously, uh, authenticity, and the role and place of wine education, securing the future of wine tourism, and securing the future of, of wines and vines. Um, how is this seminar going? How is it being received? Uh, who's attending, and what are they learning? Well, attending in attendance, we have, I think, some of the most interesting luminaries in the California, particularly the Sonoma and Napa wine industry. So we have great producers, people who have really struck their own, their own path. They, they've carved their own path forward with what they have. We have a lot of participants, you know, representatives of Sonoma Growers Association. Uh, we have people from all over the world, from, from Latin America, from Europe, wine growers, of course, the, the Irani folks that, that essentially are organizing the, the whole event. So it's really stakeholders at large, with, of course, a significant contingent of wine growers and winemakers. But if you look at who's there, they're not folks that within an industry are just happy to do whatever else does and sort of be, you know, on the sort of slow train to we don't really know where. They tend to be, besides the passion, I mean, it's almost a requisite to be part of this. And everybody will say I have passion for what I do, but they also have a passion for improvement and innovation. And, and on the production side, it's, it's quite complex. You know, if, you're, if you manage a winery, you've got to be an organic chemist. You've got to understand soil chemistry. You've got to be a manager. You've got to manage capital and capital raising. You've got to manage the geopolitical impact of you know, uh, protectionist decisions. You got to manage the communication aspects. It's really an extremely complex and varied uh, um, set of qualifications to be successful. So these are the folks that join, but folks that are also interested fundamentally in cooperating. Yes, everybody's out there to sell their wine and do as well as they can for their families and for their employees. Employees are very important, but they also folks do will not let the natural um, instinct that we all have for a little bit of competition, a little bit of, you know, uh, desire to shine or desire to do well, will not let that stand in the way of cooperating for the greater good. And that, that's what really unifies us. And I think it's going well to answer the other part of your question. We've gone through most of the working sessions. So there's been now on all the questions, all the points that you just showed me, a set of proposals, a set of analysis, a set of, in some cases, decisions and things that we seek to carry to the next year and see how we've done. Because otherwise it's just thoughts on a, you know, on a board or on a, on a website. And the people that are there, you know, there's not tens of thousands of us, but they're relevant, I think, opinion makers in the industry and they do want to make their mark. So we're hopeful that at least a few of these things will ultimately be impactful to the, uh, to the viticultural industry.
Well, they're all extremely relevant right now. Um, we believe they are, yes, yeah. but thanks for, thanks for confirming it. <laughs> well, that's what we deal with every week on here. You know, what, how, do you, how do you market? How do you brand? How do you grow? You know, how do you, how do you create? Um, lowering your impact uh, yes. on, on the environment. I mean, we've gone through things, you know, using uh, thinner glass, less right. packaging and plastic, uh, all, all kinds of different things, yeah. especially soil health. Soil health is very important. You know, for example, tilling. Um, those who've studied history will remember that North Africa once was the wheat basket of the Roman Empire, feeding millions of people. Today, North Africa is a desert. And why is it a desert? Because the climate has not changed significantly. You still see the old Roman force sitting on top of hills in now completely desert-covered parts of Tunisia and Libya and Egypt because of hundreds and hundreds of years of tilling. When you till, you destroy the bacterial structure of the, of the soil. So no tilling, reinforcing through composting, through cover crop, what is going to bring nutrients. You know, the, the organic layer sits between gases, the air, where you get snow, nitrogen, air, rain, and the rock mass. Now, people talk often about the mineral qualities of a wine. Which it's true, wines can reflect the geological, the subformation of the soil. But the vines, the, the roots of a vine, will not extract minerality directly from the rock mass. They need an organic layer, a live organic layer, full of aerobic bacteria that are close to the surface because they need oxygen, anaerobic bacteria that are further down who are adverse to oxygen, who can convert those minerals into elements that can be assimilated and essentially ingested by the roots. So without an organic layer, whether it's a foot deep or whether it's three or five feet deep, which is live, full of earthworms, full of bacteria that process these chemicals, your wine is never reflect the true geological condition of the soil. It will reflect the chemicals you put in there, it will reflect the synthetic fertilizers you put in, put in there, but you don't need to synthetically fertilize uh, your vine if you have a live soil. You know, for example, we use sheep. So they come during the winter, they leave their droppings, they graze the grass, and then they leave in the spring. And after a few years, creates a very, very rich organic and bacterial life. All the refuse from the, um, the, the, the sewage from the winery, wineries generate a lot of acidic. Uh, um, yes, we do. Exactly. <laughs> And actually, because, you know, as you know, at Chen Bleu, we also have a, <clears throat> a little hospitality structure and a, and a, a little hotel. We mix, you know, it's not the most pleasant thing to discuss, but let's talk about it because we talk about sustainability. Human sewage and, and acidic sewage from the winery. And we're using, for example, a technique that's very well known in, in China. None of the sewage that we produce gets back into the ground, gets back into rivers. We can completely autonomous. We have a, an isolated bamboo plantation with very thick plastic liners underneath and on the side. As you know, bamboos essentially grow through rhizomes, through roots. And so at night, three o'clock in the morning, we spray all that mixture onto our bamboo plantation. The rhizomes essentially suck it up, grow the bamboos, we then harvest the bamboos for other anise. You can't even smell it. You can really put your nose in the bamboo forest. You will not be able to smell the sewage. 
nothing goes into the ground, nothing goes into public sewage system, nothing goes into rivers. It's just one element, but there's so many things. We use bees, for example, um, for uh, addition, pollination, for pollination help for cover crops. And we're actually studying with the French National Agro Agronomical Research Institute and the local university, the impact that bees could have on pollination. Now, the, the received wisdom is self, uh, vines are entirely self-pollinating. And we're actually, uh, we've been doing this for three years. We're starting to think, based on the data received, it's scientific analysis, and there are far more eminently qualified scientists than me who have done this. We're starting to see a beneficial impact on areas where vines and cover crops are pollinated and covered by bees in terms of the yeasts that are the natural yeast that are on the skin and inside the berries in areas that are accessible to the bees versus other areas which for several years we've netted so we can compare. So this is also experimentation and research. So soil management is the basic foundation. You need to have a soil that is alive. When you, when you drive by sometimes some of those corn fields or wheat fields or any fields in period of drought, the earth is all cracked up when you got a heavy rain, you know, you've got these, these really, you know, deep puddles everywhere. These are the signs of a soil that's dead, right. where there's no ability by the organic layer to process water or resist to, to drought. So having a live soil is the beginning. I think, for example, the work that, that Morgan at Bedrock does in terms of his varietals, now that he has restored a number of properties to sustainable live soil, regenerative agriculture, you're looking at the incredible genetic complexity that the viticultural industry has frankly developed over the last 5,000 years. Now I know that certain things like people will like their Pinot or like their, their Cab, but there are thousands of varietals, of wine varietals all over the world. So attempting to, for example, match certain varietals that may long have been forgotten with a new conditions of drought or excessive heat or lack of altitude in some areas. There's an enormous library of genetic diversity that I think more innovative viticulturists can use to try to also address challenges like climate change. It's there. It's all out there. So the reduction of genetic diversity in one or two particular forms of viticultural production, it's like corn, it's like wheat. It's like the beef cattle industry that I happen to know a little bit. Everybody wants to do black Angus, wants to do red Angus. We're, we're up in the mountains of Montana, 7,000 feet. The Scottish Highlands do great. By the way, it's the oldest known uh, 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 species of, of cattle on record. So can we also try to rediscover a little bit of diversity? Because it's also a tremendous help against disease, against viruses. You know, when you see these enormous areas of monoculture, it's the same varietal for right. miles and miles and miles and miles. And there's not a blade of grass in between the rows. And then you get spores that carry viruses that carry cryptogams, little uh, little mushrooms. And over square miles upon square miles, there's just one varietal and nothing else. That's what's getting attacked. So it's right. also a strategy of diversification and risk management. Come on over, Brian. Uh, drinking Chen Bleu. <laughs> 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 Are you kidding? I can talk about Chen Bleu for hours. No idea. 
There's a um, there's a farm in Marin County. We we say here locally, but it's it's in Marin County called Stemple Creek. Okay. Um, and and I'll, I'll send you Stemple Creek. I've not heard of them, but yeah, love and, to and visit, regeneratively maybe. farmed cattle ranch. Um, and uh, you know well, they've got great beef. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and it's amazing the work that he's done. And, and I'll send you. This is I mean people have heard us talk about it before, but um, you might find it fascinating, especially since you're kind of looking into that. Um, but but you know, very closely um, uh, grazing, you know, in a compact area, and then moving the cattle through, and exactly um, what he's done to the soil, the way he's changed the soil, that for generations was exactly what you said, cracked, flooded, um, and and it's completely changed it. That rotational grazing, the the scientific foundations were led by a gentleman from Rhodesia called Alan Savory, who actually now has a a Savory Institute in the United States. And again, it's the observation of nature. He observed in Southern Africa that herds of millions of wild animals, wildebeest, you know, zebras, would migrate through the savanna. And of course, when they landed somewhere, they grazed it to the ground and they broke up the soil. And then they moved on, and, and, and those areas had the richest, most diverse, and healthiest prairie. Why? Because the surface of the soil was broken, so it would ingest the rain, the, the gases. Gases are very important for nutrition, for plant nutrition. But it will also graze the plants to, to essentially to the ground, but the recuperation period was very long. Yeah. And so in modern ranching management, uh, since World War II, the technique was the opposite. You Let's say you had 20,000, 30,000 acres. You computed the number of AUMs. That's the cow, calf, bears. And say, okay, I've got 20,000 acres. I can put, you know, 600 cow, uh, cow calves, bears, and I'm going to let them loose from spring until fall. And what happens is the, the cows, they graze the crown of grass. And then they come back randomly, and two or three weeks later, they graze it again, and they graze it again. And after a few years and decades, the grass won't grow back because what the grass requires once it's been grazed down and gra- being grazed down is good is a long recuperation period ideally one to two years minimum that's how the old prairie that's how the old midwest savanna was like so it doesn't surprise me to hear that that particular farmer you mentioned that i wasn't aware of is using that same technique concentrated grazing in small areas and you move it along quickly you leave it a few days maybe a week or two and it won't return for a while. That's what produces a very, very healthy prairie. And the best combination, actually, that we've seen is doing that together with forms of agricultural and cereal production. So you can actually mix stock growing with traditional agriculture if you do it in certain conditions because, of course, it helps bring back a lot of the compost and a lot of, you know, the reason we use sheep at, at La Verrière, at Chien Bleu, is, is because of that fertilization and that grazing. But again, they don't come back for a year. Right. They're so very I'm not surprised there. to hear that that yeah. farmer is doing well. Yeah, yeah. Um, they rent sheep around here. Yeah. yeah. We, we've had, um, w- there's been more sheep in Sonoma and Napa counties in the last year than there have probably been total in the last 10 years. It's, it's really, people have really grown to it. Um, and I think also um, with the fire danger, yeah. um, you know, the, the Sonoma County 
um, Sonoma County Parks Department um, has integrated encourage that and and sheep yeah and and made huge differences because you know what's worse is a completely ungrazed piece Absolutely. of land right where Absolutely. there's no competition the evasive um, weeds take over um, uh, yeah you know um, and, I mean, and, and we know that weeds will change also right um, constant you know, there are weeds that will have adapted to live through herbicides. They, they absolutely do. And, you know, if you look at, let's say, a pasture. In fact, in, in Montana, I work with some local First Nations, particularly uh, crows and the flathead who have been practicing ritual, very concentrated, technically smart burns for thousands of years. Yes. If you, if you let grass grow in an area, let's say a high-altitude pasture, and it is never grazed. So the grass will grow, will dry up, it'll grow again, you know, get rid of snow. After a decade, 10, 15 years, the surface of the soil is covered with a thick matting of dead grass that prevents rain, snow, nitrogen melting from the snow and, and seeds from getting into the soil. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's almost like an insulation. So wild grazing in the old patterns like buffaloes bisons in the american plains or wildebeest in, actually is essential in the regeneration of the soil because it breaks up the surface mixes the nutrients but what the grass needs is a long recuperation period if the grass is routinely and repetitively and randomly grazed every two or three weeks then the crown will will die right and and that's 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 really the way the American prairie used to work. And you can with modern regenerative agriculture, and sheep in particular, if you ask Morgan at, at Bedrock, he'll tell you because he's, he's done the scientific analysis. It's not just the pretty picture for a sort of regenerative tourism. The type of fertilizer that the sheep will leave is particularly well suited to viticulture. It's a rich fertilizer. It requires a long period of degradation. You know, frost actually helps, so it, it doesn't decompose very quickly. So the release is also pretty slow. And then you can measure. We've done it for, for many decades, for several decades now, Chen Bleu. Yeah. You can measure the increase in, in the, 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 the richness of the microbiome and the nutrients that are in the soil. You know, farming and stock growing, they're really meant to go together if, yeah. if done right. Yeah. You're absolutely spot on on yeah. that particular point yeah wow i i mean this <laughs> this is so much information and there's so much to learn well you this. know you're serving me wine what do you expect <laughs> <laughs> well it's a perfect day to have you know just sit out here this is pretty much the nice nice day in sonoma good and so uh, could uh, do you know a little bit off this subject but also still very important can you kind of give us an update on what's going on in your part of France viticulturally in the growing season this year? Yeah. You know, here we're um, very far behind and... Um, or uh, very far cold, ahead, you know, depends which way you look at right, it. Right, exactly. And the drought. I mean, last year yeah. the Loire vanished. Oh, no. You, uh, France in general and, and Europe last year suffered grievously. Uh, Provence, uh, the south where we are, had essentially a three-month drought, not a drop of rain, but with temperatures in the hundreds and above. Um, so in that environment, being high up, yeah. although not a perfect solution, made a huge difference. Right. Because, you know, your vines at some point, 
if the drought is extreme, particularly if your soil is not healthy, if you don't have a little bit of relief at night when the temperatures drop, eventually the vine, even if you cultivate it regeneratively, which sadly few people do, uh, certainly in France, the vine will essentially get blocked. It's of the maturation uh, uh, process. Bordeaux had all these wildfires. Uh, you know, it's not just the drought, not just the heat. You've had quite a bit of that here too. And fire and smoke, of course, affects the organoleptic qualities of of your wine because it, you know, the smoke, the carbon, the soot, is deposited on the skin. So we are going to see more and more of that. The I don't want to get into a lengthy conversations, but since you've plied me with wine, I'll give you a, maybe a little look into um, some of the recent science that's come out in the area of climate change. Because the obsession is CO2, and there's no doubt CO2 is a contributor to climate change. But many scientists today are saying, who are not funded by business or by governments, that actually CO2 is a very small contributor to climate change, is a marginal contributor to climate change. What is impacting climate change, and I think we're going to see it this winter with El Nino, if indeed it is a, an extreme El Nino, is we, we're coming out of three years of back-to-back -back La Nina, which is very unusual. And the year before, we already had an El Nino. So El Nino, La Nina three times, and El Nino. That combination is also increasingly here. What they're saying is, this is where I think viticulture can help, but also agriculture in general. It is the chemical pollution of the oceans the release of microplastics, the release of forever chemicals, the release of PFAs, whole range of, of, of certain types of chemicals, not all chemicals, that destroys what they call the surface micro layer of the oceans. And the Pacific Ocean being the largest is of course the most influential in terms of weather and actually the United States, uh, China, India, Australia, the US and Latin America are the most impacted of course by changes in atmospheric patterns over the Pacific Ocean. That surface micro layers, which is about a thousand microns, about a millimeter thick, does two things. First of all, it feeds phytoplankton. Phytoplankton is essentially the foundation of all the nourishment that goes into zooplankton and goes into marine biology. According to their estimates, half of the world's phytoplankton is gone since 1970. And phytoplankton, according to the models I've seen, and it's not just one scientist, historically has produced about 70% of the oxygen that our planet relies upon. So trees play an important part, but a minor part. We're done. Okay. <laughs> no, well, well you, you, you can, you know, I, I'm happy to stop if no, you no, wish. No, but, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> but, but there's a solution to this. And, and, and what they're saying is the second thing is the surface microlayer, besides being the vital foundation of essentially all the food that comes out of the ocean. And you know, many scientists today will tell you in a region a half to two thirds of existing life in the marine environment is already gone. And we're not talking about 5%. But the other very important uh, impact that, the, that a healthy surface microlayer can have is it, arc, it acts as a thermal regulator of the oceans. And here's what they believe is the number one factor powering climate change. Not CO2, unimportant, but, but really minor compared to, to, to that first element. Methane comes third, and then you have black carbon. And so they believe it's water vapor. It's essentially the Pacific Ocean and other oceans 
accelerating rates of evaporation that creates climate. We're talking about climate change here. And all these atmospheric rivers we've had right. hit California. Uh, Brighton, Utah this year received 850 inches of Good snow. Lord. That's 25 meters for those who yeah. compute in metric system. <laughs> this is a record. We don't have anything like that. So climate is indeed already out of control. The good thing is that if we stop producing specific class of, 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 of chemicals, and in the wine in the viticultural industry, a lot of producers of whites and rosés in particular use microplastics to find their wine. It's called polyvinyl, PV, PV, polyperolidone, yeah. PVPP. Yeah. Now, that is a microplastic. It's, they say it's not lethal. It's not. It goes into your stomach. It ends up in the river. It ends up in the in, in the seas, but in the seas, together with many other chemicals, it it, it impacts the the phytoplankton. So you know, you look at sustainable viticulture. It's in the it's in the ground, but it's also in the winery. You can use bentonite. You can use organic green pea powder. You can use many other completely organic and natural alternative rather than microplastics. So there's things, and and that's not going to change the economics of the wine industry. So why do we continue to knowingly use, knowingly not always, but mostly certainly on a part of what scientists are telling us, products that do nothing for the taste, do nothing for the product experience, and actually hurt the environment. Yeah. So that's the sort of thing that Arani, for example, looks at. Are there things that we can do to change our ways, make it known? Because in the context of climate change, if we get the extreme El Nino that many scientists, including the NOAA, are telling us is on the way, that's going to be a very difficult year. And uh, you know, the countries that will suffer will be India, will be China, will be Australia. And you know, the weather patterns in the, the southern United States, probably California, Texas, and uh, the sort of southern East Coast, will be impacted. The Northwest will probably do a little bit better. But they also say that if we stop releasing these pollutants in, in the oceans. Phytoplankton has the ability to repair itself very quickly, just uh -huh. like regenerative agriculture. I mean, we're not talking about three months, but a, a dozen years could make a big difference. So wh why not do it? And so even if on a small scale, we in the viticultural industry can start moving away from chemicals we don't need, why not do it either? You know, after all, it's a little bit, you know, every little well, bit can help. It's the right thing to do if we want to live here anymore. Like very, I was very, saying, you know, very early in well, my career. Well, you know, it's really for our children and grandchildren, right? Because for us, yeah, you yeah, know, we've, we've part of our life is behind us already. But. Right. My my son will be very quick to um, point out that it's you know our generations that have messed this all up, and now He's we're relying wrong. on them to fix it all. He's not wrong. Um, and, and it's funny that you mentioned I haven't thought about PVPP in a long time, but it's just it, one of them. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. Right. But just like I can remember using it and just thinking like, what is this? Yeah, and it's everywhere. It? And even if you wore your respirator, you could taste it and it was in your, it was just everywhere. Um, and we used to dump it in the wine, you know? So um, you can use things that yeah. are natural, yeah, that are not gonna impact the organoleptic qualities you want. And more importantly, I mean, for, for us at Chen Blue, we use uh, organic green pea powder. Yeah, And it, there's other solutions. But for us, it works well because yeah. we, we have our own bees, we have our own garden, and we have access to organic producers in the, in the Rhone Valley. Why not, why not do something else? I mean, it's, in a way, it's, it's, a little bit the, it's a little bit of a, in my view, 
a little bit of a laziness because you 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 got a problem with your land, so you buy all these chemicals, and then the guy shows up and says, "Oh, by the way, I've got this for this, and I've got that for that," and the list goes on and on and on. And after a while, it's just a habit. Right. Okay, and that's human nature. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And well, here's a hat from I my chemical company. <laughs> no, no, we we always have a joke that you can tell a little bit about your farmer by the type of hat that he's wearing because you know. We have uh, such a variety of information here, and there's no way we can do this in an hour. I promised Nicole that I would have you out of here at five minutes after three, so we've got about 10 minutes to really wrap up yeah yeah so what are the most important things that you want to communicate to our audience which is a, a mixture of consumers and wine uh professionals pr professionals and growers and and producers well as a as a wine all right i might not give myself the qualification professional but certainly as a as a wine stakeholder and as a as a, a co-manager it's really nicole who does all the work uh as a co-manager of a winery i'm also a consumer um so my my perhaps parting comment would be really directed at the consumer because the consumer is a customer the consumer is a client and it is really ultimately you know we discuss for example the futures of the vines the futures of the industry it is really in their hands you know all of us by the way not there you know some some uh, amorphous blob somewhere it's the individuals today we all have to a certain extent given our ability to consume our ability to send a bit of money on some products we all have the ability because there's so much information available and frankly probably too much as far as wine is concerned there are certain media you know vehicles for example like your 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 uh, podcast um, some apps that give the consumer the ability if they if they would like to maintain one of the oldest form of cultural and, and social expression and and, and old, oldest form of agricultural humanity that we have if they want to try and improve it if they want to try to exercise their buying power even if it's limited, even if they buy a bottle every now and then, do take the time because also, in my view, it's fun. There's so much today that's available. Try to connect into, it could be an app, listen to a podcast, to, to sort of almost educate yourself, learn about the industry and make a difference. You know, when you see a product, when the small producer has been looking at very, old varietals is looking making the efforts to regenerate his or her land to avoid the use of chemicals in the winery or in the soil you can vote it's almost like an election at the end of the day it's in your hands as a customer you can vote if you're going to encourage or discourage that kind of thing you know what what kind of health what kind of environment what kind of society do you want that's that would be my my only uh, humble suggestion we all have a little bit of power in our hands and if everybody seeks to exercise it that doesn't mean we're going to get it right all the time we can actually change many things about the way agriculture which has been run really as an adjunct of the chemical industry in my humble opinion we can run it differently 
we can change things. And it, it will be for the healthcare benefits, maybe not of us, but of our children. Yeah. It will be for the benefits of the planet because these things are not irreversible. These things can be changed. And change is difficult. Uh, it comes with great difficulty to humankind because once we're down a groove, you know, it's comfortable. But I think the joy of learning about something, you know, I could say, you know, go out and learn about different kinds of corn and different kinds of, of wheat and different kinds of carrots, you know, your regenerative carrots versus a non-regenerative carrot. All of this you can do. But wine is so special. Wine is a social way of connecting with the rest of humanity. It's so much that some would like to use today to separate us, to make us feel angry at each other. Wine cuts across that. Share a very good bottle of wine with, with five or six strangers. Forget about friends. And you'll find that at the end of that experience, they're not strangers anymore. They are friends, yeah. Don't we need a little more of that? Absolutely. So exercise, in my view, my humble suggestion, exercise the power that you have to educate yourself a little bit about what makes fine wine, what makes regenerative wine, what makes good wines, because it's the passion, not just the activities, not just the desire for commercial recognition. It's the passion of its, of its producers. And I, and I do think you will get a little bit of enjoyment and greater fun uh, out, of, out of doing so. Wow. I, I, I mean, what a, what a great spot to end Really? Um, this episode right. of the Winemakers Podcast, and um, we will hopefully get to do this again with you sometime down okay. the road. Well, I'll let and, you know how we get on with my project. And yeah. we come will back. be yeah. talking with Nicole about Chen Blue specifically. Great. And what a beautiful spot in this world that you have there. I mean, it's a beautiful it, spot here, too. It is. You but can't it, complain. You are in such a little island there up in the mountains. It's, yeah. it's just you. I hear you lost the. Blue oak tree? Yeah. I mean, that oak tree had been, uh, it died of, of senescence. It was over 300 years old. And, <laughs> and we had painted it with, with uh, uh, copper sulfide to protect it with stripped blue it tree. Bark. Right. And we thought it was going to last four or five years. It lasted 15 years as a, as a dead tree. But we're now, and Nicole will give you more details, engaged in an artistic project with uh, a fantastic Italian artist to try to, you know, that tree had been there a long time. And it symbolized for us that old property. The property was built in the ninth century. It was 1,100 years old. It was a priory. It was a Templar farm, Templar establishment. Great plumbing, I'm sure. That tree for us was a way to bring it back to life. It was dead. It had been abandoned for many, many decades. So we gave that tree a second life. Now we want to get, give it a third life. But it will be an artistic inspiration. I'll let Nicole... Yeah, tell you right. more about Sounds it because it's it's who we are that that, that tree bart any shout outs before we go today no you know um uh tickets are available for the sonoma valley vintage fest vintage festival uh the last weekend of september uh right now you can get tickets uh for the grand tasting and for the um the dinner before um online at sonoma valley uh, um, I would also Wrong. like to say that we have uh, this weekend, um, well, that will pass by the, by the time this goes up, the Rhone Rangers um, tasting out at Klein Winery. But the other thing is going along with um, International Grenache Day on September 17th. 
um, we are celebrating here in Sonoma Valley uh, with a couple of events. And so uh, stay tuned for more details about that um, because we do love our Grenache oh, here we in do. Sonoma. That was also. another Nicole creation, yep. International <laughs> Grenache Day. Yes. I like that it. That woman is... Well, we celebrate it, believe me. Yeah. Or, or Grenache incredible. Month here, basically. Yeah. Keep in mind, she's a New York raised and born ladies who are in New York City all her life and then discovered through, you know, her fate uh, making her uh, become my wife she discovered viticulture yeah a little over 20 years well, we're ago. glad we're glad you guys got together because we wouldn't be here without that so right. well um, she's an incredible lady and and i think she deserves a lot of so we shall continue the shen blue story and arini dot uh, com yep. available that's it and yep. anybody can look it up the seminar is going on now in sonoma and you can get a summary online for free just go to arini.com and it's actually and there are so many podcasts linked to it and so many yes. articles written on the article the the art the website is a great resource um and so uh, we will post that with the show for everybody to um follow along with that because yeah. there's a lot of a lot of information and so it's actually arini.global yes okay there we go yeah. and why not be ambitious and, <laughs> and, and and what we're talking about is ensuring the future of fine wines you can get it right there online with everybody access so all right well thank you so very much for coming thanks for on having me really on your show it. i'm really sorry see that you we in only, two years time we only had, we only had an hour yeah. plus but that's it Great. so all right thanks bart we'll see you next week thanks for listening everybody we'll talk to you next week